We all crave connection. At our core, we all want to feel loved and understood. Hi, I'm Nechami, founder of Carmela Cosmetics, a company that produces high-performance natural beauty products and is dedicated to uniting and empowering women through the power of color. This is We Are Women, a podcast where women speak their truth and celebrate their victories. This podcast came about as a way to give a voice to all women because we all have stories to share. It's a place where we'll learn about each other and ourselves, dive into important issues that affect us, discover all that we have in common, and make some memories. So pour yourself a glass of red and get comfortable. Every night is ladies' night, and we are women. So excited about tonight's interview. I had the honor of speaking with Shira Rosenbluth, who many of you know as the Shira Rose, who is a body positive blogger, influencer, and licensed clinical therapist. She is a huge inspiration for all of us who follow her or see her posts. She talks a lot about body image and appreciating loving your body, loving yourself, and this is the concept that aligns so well with our brand message. So I'm really excited and privileged to have her on tonight. We covered so much information in this short time span. We spoke about her struggles with having an eating disorder at a young age, her fight against fat phobia, her story of relapsing in the public eye, and how you can do your part to keep your kids healthy and do your best to prevent them from developing future eating disorders. Keep on listening for Shira's professional advice and personal experience. I struggled with an eating disorder from the time I was probably as early as age 10, um, but struggled even earlier before that. I grew up in a family where... um, being thin was really, really important. And I kind of got the message that to be loved in my family, I need to be thin. And then of course that was perpetuated by the society we live in where you hear about it all the time. I was in school and um, our teachers would talk about dieting. They would say, you know, if you want to get married, you need to think about your weight. And so it was just clear to me from the time I had words that being smaller and shrinking my body was something that I needed to do to be safe in this world and to be loved. And obviously eating disorders are so much more complex than just wanting to be thin. It's not a vanity issue. It's a mental health issue. And so there's a lot of other issues, but of course that was kind of the, kind of one of the the things that kind of perpetuated my eating disorder and um, starting a diet when I was 10 or being put on a diet when I was 10 was kind of the catalyst. And I struggled for years and years after. Um, and my own struggles made me so incredibly passionate in wanting to make this world safer for people in larger bodies or just for people in general. And so that's kind of why I started, um, why, why I became a therapist and also now treat people with eating disorders as well as using my platform on social media to talk about health at every size and body positivity. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Could you tell me, so you just mentioned about being put on a diet as a child. So how did that even happen? Because as a 10 year old, that's like fifth grade, right? You're not like what, what happened there? Did the doctor say something to your parents? Did your parents just decide? Because that's a very, that's very young to be put on a diet. You know, it really is. But if you look at studies, it's actually way more common than you think, which is so concerning, especially because the um, American Academy of Pediatrics says, do not put your children on diets. It's harmful. But we care so much about people's weights that we do this again and again and perpetuate harm. So yeah, I was a kid. I think my neighbor was doing this like junior Weight Watchers program. And I casually mentioned it to my mother. And she was like, yeah, we should do that. We should do that. And then the day after I was like, no, 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 I don't want to do it anymore. And she kind of was like, no, 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 we're doing this. So and I just want to say like, no, 
like I, my my mother did the best she could at that point with like with, with what she knew. So I really have no anger or like hard feelings towards her. She didn't know any better, and she grew up in the same environment that we all grew up in. So yeah, I started the Weight Watchers program, and it was all my eating disorder needed to like take off. Within two weeks, I had like a full blown eating disorder, and then struggled with it for decades after. Wow! Wow! Okay, you would say that that was like the catalyst for your body insecurity and eating disorders. I mean, my body insecurity started younger because I was getting really awful messages messages younger, and then there was like some trauma that happened. So I think it's a combination. Usually, I mean, eating disorders are not usually one thing. It's usually biology, environment, temperament. Like there's so many things that go into it. For me, it's probably a combination of biology, temperament, and environment um, for sure. When you went, so as a kid, obviously you're going to the pediatrician and stuff, right? So mm-hmm. what did your, did your doctors notice anything? Did they say anything to your parents? I mean, you're already on the diet. Yeah. Point. I mean, my doctors didn't say anything. I also never looked like somebody with an eating disorder. So it was never a concern, which we, I mean, hopefully more and more people are realizing now that eating disorders don't have a look, but our society perpetuates the idea that you have to be this thin white woman to have an eating disorder. And that's not real. Like, actually, ironically, most people with eating disorders are not in a thin body, but so I guess part of um, why it wasn't caught was because I didn't look like someone with an eating disorder. Um, but I remember going to the doctor and my, my little brother at the time had like, I don't know, he was very thin. And so my mother was like, one, one of my kids needs to gain weight. And one of my kids needs to lose weight. And I remember just feeling so, so much shame at the doctor. I don't remember my doctor specifically saying anything. I, I remember it more being a family and teachers and friends and everyone in the neighborhood and just like hearing constantly about how my body was wrong. My body was bad. But, um, I, like, I remember my mother saying things at the doctor's office, but not necessarily my doctor. I mean, I think when I was 14, my eating disorder got, so it was four years later, four years of having a severe eating disorder that completely went ignored because I didn't look like somebody with an eating disorder Mm -hmm. until it got to the point where it became so severe that I think my family was like, oh, wait, I think she has an eating disorder. Like it got to the point where they couldn't deny it anymore. And that's when the therapist, the, the doctor sent me to a therapist. Well, so you were 14 at the time. Yeah. So four years of having a severe eating disorder completely. Like, and I remember even when I was 11 or 12, like casually mentioning to somebody, I, I think a school counselor, maybe um, casually mentioning it to her and she kind of dismissed it. My mother dismissed it. Everyone dismissed it because I didn't look like I had an eating disorder. And so it couldn't be true, which is so scary to think about because number one, the earlier you catch an eating disorder, the more chance you have of recovering. And, and also why would I share something so like shameful and embarrassing if it wasn't real, you know? So for sure, for sure. Wow. That's incredible. So when you say looking like you have an eating disorder, are you talking about being like emaciated or super skinny? Yes. So we, when we think of an eating disorder, we think of somebody emaciated and so underweight and you could totally tell, but the reality is, I mean, and I was in and out of treatment as a kid, almost in every single hospital, 98% of the people in the hospital with me were people you would walk right by in the street and have no idea they were struggling. Wow. Wow. So a child was, let's say, at an unhealthy weight, like very overweight. How would you deal with that as a therapist and also going through an eating disorder yourself as a kid? How would you deal with with, with a child who actually really needs to, let's say, like lose weight, you know? So I actually, I don't agree. I don't think there's any safe way for any kid to lose weight, no matter what, what size they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like bodies are diverse. Like we're not all meant to be one size. Think about shoes. There's a size four and a size 11 or 12 and below and above that. And none of them is wrong. It's just 
our bodies are diverse. Like that's, that's what, that's the unique part of being a human in this world. But more importantly, there is no safe way to lose weight without it either, especially in a child perpetuating disordered eating and eating disorders. But also ironically, if we're so concerned about weight loss, the more someone diets, the, the more likely they are for their weight to go higher. So what I would do is no matter what weight my child was or my client's child was, focusing on healthy health promoting behaviors, right? Everyone could benefit from more movement. Everyone could benefit from eating more vegetables. It's a lot more about thinking, what can we add to the diet instead of what can we take away? Mm-hmm. Because the second we start restricting, human nature, biology is to want it more and then to either binge or to just be in the cycle of restricting and then binging. And we don't want that for children, let alone anyone in this world. So I would say, let's focus on health promoting behaviors for people in all bodies and let's celebrate that bodies are not all going to be the same. Um, instead of focusing on, you know, because let me tell you something, at the end of the day, if we're so concerned about health, some, the, the most unhealthy thing here would be for this kid to develop an eating disorder, right. way more than this supposed unhealthy weight. Right. So you're saying just pretty much like promote a healthy lifestyle, not like yeah. no restrictions, just like help them teach them kind of how to, you know, eat healthy and just be active. Right, But I, but I also think we need to be careful here because how many thin children do we know that never exercise and eat junk from morning to night? And we don't right, say right. anything to them. So really health morning behaviors are great for anyone of any size. And we should also teach our kids to feel like we should encourage them to feel good in their bodies and celebrate what they look like no matter what. That's so true. It's so interesting that you say that because people who have super fast metabolisms, like they don't get comments like that. Exactly. Um, like, you know, you see these kids who are super, super, like super thin and they're just like taking one piece of bread after the next, you know, or, and like eating candy and no one's looking twice at them. And then you see these kids who are overweight and everyone's like judging them and being, and like, maybe you should tell your kid to stop eating so much, you know? <laughs> right. Which is exactly why it's so much more about our own fat phobia as opposed to someone's health. Because if it was about health, we would care about everyone, but we only care about the kid in a larger body. So, yeah. Right. That's so true. That's a great point. So, okay. So going back to you, so how did your healing journey begin? So I ended up in a lot of treatment and a lot of, um, not great treatment to put it mildly. I've talked about it a bunch, um, on my like social media platforms and on a, a couple of websites, but, um, ultimately I ended up a couple or like last year or the year before turning to colleagues when I relapsed for support because, um, treatment was, was not feeling helpful for me. And that's not to say that it can't be helpful for some people, but for me, it just wasn't. So, um, I ended up turning to colleagues for support and, um, I did a lot of just eating with them. And, and for the first time in my life, I was around people that I knew I was safe within my body and that they, they didn't care about like, my weight or what size I was, they just wanted me to be free of my eating disorder and wanted my body to do whatever it wanted to do. My body is naturally not thin. And so they were so accepting and loving of me no matter what. And that really, really was healing for me because I never had that experience my whole life. Um, and so that really helped kind of get me to, the, to a, a place where I'm just so much more free around food in my body. Wow. So it was really like your colleagues who helped you get through this. Yes. And I'm lucky because, you know, this is what I do. And so I, not everyone has that opportunity, but I would say for people that don't have that, even just community, like having friends and support system of people that love you and um, just want to be there for you no matter what. And that's not, it's not replacing treatment. Like I still had a therapist and I still had a dietitian and I still had a support, like a whole treatment team. And, you know, that's important for people with eating disorders, but um, community is and, and connection and friendship is is so important. 
So how did your family and friends support you? Um, so my family, as much as I love them, they're still very much stuck in diet culture. So I okay. didn't necessarily utilize them for support. I more so went to my colleagues and fr- like my colleagues who are my friends for um, the support that I needed. So your friends and your colleagues, was it more of just supporting you on your bat and your hard days, I should say, um, challenging days and just being there as a friend to like kind of like cheer you on? I mean, it, it, I even took it a step further. I ended up moving in with one of my friends who does this for a living too. And um, she kind of just like did all, we, we ate all of our meals together for about two months until at that point I was very malnourished. And I like, you know, was my brain was probably, it just needed help getting the food that I needed in. And so I stayed with her for a while and um, it was like a safe environment for me to do that instead of like going back to the hospital. Like I just, at that point it was hospital or try something new. And I was wanting to try something new and it was the best thing I ever did for myself. Yeah. That's very understandable. Also, you seem to have a very strong intuition besides for the fact that you're a therapist, you you're trusting your intuition, you know, and that's what, and you know, what's best for you. Exactly. So yeah, I, I tell it to my clients all the time. Your intuition is so important. So yeah. I love that. Yeah. So just to have like a timeline over here. So from when you were 10 to 14, that's when you had a pretty severe eating disorder. And mm-hmm. then you started getting help when you were 14, right? Yeah. But when I was 14 and I got help, my eating disorder did not get any better. I, I kind of, basically I went to treatment center after treatment center where I was given the message again that my body was a problem. I remember the first day of the hospital, the second day of the hospital that I was in for the first time, the doctor said to me, oh, look what happens when you don't binge and purge. You lost a pound overnight. And I was like, what? Like, again, he's perpetuating the idea that like, I should be like, he's basically telling me that it's okay for me to restrict because I don't have a body that looks like somebody with an eating disorder while saying that other people, you know, it's dangerous for them. And so that was the message that I got over and over. Like, again, your body is a problem. Your body is wrong, even in treatment. And that did not help me recover at all. Um, especially because my restriction at some points were appraised. And the first 10 years of my eating disorder, I had bulimia. Um, and that was from 10 to like 20. And then in my twenties, I cycled in and out of like uh, severe anorexia and then back to bulimia. Um, but my anorexia was praised because my body became smaller for the first time in my life. And that was what everybody wanted my body to do. And so imagine being praised for killing yourself. It's a pretty awful experience. Yeah. Um, which is why I tell people, please do not comment on people's weights. We never know. You would never in a million thousand years, like think that I had an eating disorder ever. And so I was being praised for shrinking my body and really dying. So yeah, it was a interesting experience. So yeah, from 14, from 10 to 20, it was bulimia and I was not getting better. I had like a couple of years here and there where I was like semi-okay or like I would call it quasi recovered. Maybe from 18 to 20, I like had a, like I was okay-ish, but never fully free. And that's when you became a therapist around then, right? I became a therapist. Well, I went to, I went to grad school and I graduated when I was 24. Um, and I, at that point I was I guess live like, you know, like a lot of people eating disorder is very high functioning. You would never know, like living my life. Um, and I, yeah, I was a therapist, I was working and I was, I was not, you know, I, I went in and out of periods where things were worse or better, but I guess, I, you know, some periods were like what I would call quasi recovery, which is kind of not really fully giving up the eating disorder, but maybe like in a more quote unquote manageable way, although that's not real like life. Right. Okay. Okay, that makes but sense. then, yeah. And then when I 
and I relapsed at this point it was um so I was 28 I think and when I relapsed this time it was uh, kind of worse because at this point I had a big social media following and so essentially I relapsed in the public eye which was a really uncomfortable and hard experience I mean like first of all I'm so anti-diet and I believe that with all of my heart and I also have a mental illness and so when people were like, oh my gosh, how do you do it? I wasn't going to be like, hey, a diet. First of all, it wasn't a diet. It was anorexia. But also for the first time, people were commenting on my body and my like social media platforms and, and like all over. And it was really uncomfortable. And I just kept saying like, oh, I'm going through some medical issues. And like when it gets resolved, I'll be back in my like naturally larger body because I didn't know what else to say. And then finally got to the point um, a, a little over a year ago where I decided to share my story just because there were so many things I wanted to talk about and I wanted to like use my platform to talk about the messages that I'm, I'm passionate about. And I felt like, you know, instead of being like a client, a client, like I felt like it was more powerful if it really just came from me and my experiences. So I shared my story. Wow. That's amazing. Cause it could not have been easy for you to do that as a, you know, influencer and public figure. Yeah, no, it was, it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I think the thing that was the, the hardest was that, you know, you get a lot of judgment and a lot of assumptions about, talking about it, about having an eating disorder, about my, you know, my abilities as a therapist. And so I think all of that, I think the thing I was most scared of was risking my career. Um, it turns out that I have some incredible colleagues who, who've, who've seen my work and I've worked with them in, in, in like supervision sessions and like just collaborating with them with clients. And they've seen that my work has been strong, you know, no matter what. And I know how to take breaks when things are not okay. And I think they realized that and that was helpful, but you get so much judgment from all these people that don't know you. I know 5% of what you choose to share online. So that's is always hard and it never gets easier. Um, but I also think I have been able to help so many people. And I think I try to, I really try to keep that in mind. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Also, how did your clients react when you went public with the fact that you had been currently suffering from eating disorder? Yeah. I mean, I don't remember the time. I mean, the timeline is a little hazy, but there were, like I did take a break when I was struggling to get help. So I, I wasn't, I don't remember which period it was that I wasn't working, but I did take a break, take care of myself. Um, most of my clients, yeah, no one, obviously nobody had any idea, but, um, a lot of my clients, like either they were religious and just like, didn't just so religious to the point where they don't necessarily have social media. So they <laughs> um, and then some of my clients, so the couple that I did share with ended up really strengthening our relationship like any questions that they had I was very open and not open in terms of like sharing things I didn't feel comfortable with, but letting like them express whatever they needed to express and talk about whatever anxiety they had and we discussed it and it ended up really actually making our relationship stronger um I don't think people realize this but just a reminder that my sessions are about my clients not about me but obviously my story can come in the room and I'm ha I'm so comfortable being able to like talk about how it might impact them. But it, it didn't really end up impacting any of my clients uh, besides for one word ended up really strengthening our relationship and connection and with her really being able to open up more. Um, and then at this point I will now I'm obviously in a, in a much better place in my recovery. And so I might here and there when it's appropriate, maybe, talk about how I, I might understand something, but I think it's also important to remember that like all of my clients have their own stories. And just because I went through an eating disorder, it doesn't mean that my client's eating disorder is the same at all. And it's, everyone has their right. own stories. So. That's a, yeah, that's a great point actually, Shira, because a lot of people think that just because they've 
let's say like it's, it's the same title, you know, they, they've gone through the same, whatever, like let's say it's anorexia, bulimia or whatever, depression, whatever the case is, um, they think that they could fully understand someone else. And the truth is that everybody has their own journey and their own story. And even if you've technically suffered from the same thing someone else has been through, your story is, is your own. It's unique to you. Exactly. I think that's the danger of some people that go into the field thinking, well, I experienced it. So therefore, like, I know how to, like, I know everything. And that's so dangerous. Yeah, all of my clients are different. All of my clients have their own stories. I think that's actually, actually where some of the judgments on social media comes from, because people will say, well, I had an eating disorder, and I compared myself to everyone. So how could you not compare yourself to your clients? And I'm like, your experience is not my experience. My eating disorder had nothing to do with comparison. Like, and so I think that's why people are so quick to judge because they think, well, this is how I dealt with it. And so obviously this is what you're doing. And that's so far from the case because, and, and, and you know, the other piece is like, I wouldn't say to everyone, oh, like you should go into the field. Everyone's different. Like, obviously I did this with like talking to other like professionals and talking to my own therapist and talking to my supervisors and coming to the conclusion that this is the work I was meant to do. And this is something that I'm good at and that I never want to stop doing but everyone is different and everyone will make their own decisions about whether or not that's good for them and their clients. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. So how much of recovery is it possible to achieve? You know, like, could you ever get fully recovered? Yeah, that's such a great question. And it comes up so much. And I think the the thing that I'm going to say is going to be a really annoying answer. And I'm sorry, but the truth is that it's not a black and white answer. Some people like, uh, go, get help and they fully are free and their eating disorders completely in the past. Other people, it remains a struggle for them. I think for anyone to make a blanket statement about what recovery is going to look like, you should run because again, everyone's unique. Everyone has their own stories. And so many things c- come into play. I mean, first of all, like how long did you have an eating disorder before you got help? Did you get the right help? Did you get any help at all? Could you afford the help that you needed? Are you like, you know, what kind of body are you recovering into? Are you recovering into a thin body that's completely accepted by society? Are you recovering into a larger body where everyone tells you that your body's wrong for existing? Are you recovering in a black body where people don't even acknowledge you have an eating disorder? I mean, there's so many things that come into play when it, when it comes to getting access to help. And so whether or not someone can recover is completely dependent. I have friends that have had eating disorders for decades and are completely free. And I have other friends who unfortunately have died from their eating disorders or continue to really struggle. So, and then everything, you know, in between, some people just have gotten to a point where they're a lot more free, but it comes up here and there. So I, again, it's so unique and individual. Okay. No, that makes sense. makes total sense. I know it's not, it's not like the easy answer everybody wants to hear like, yes or no, but but it's the truth. So yeah, Yeah. no, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I was just thinking, does insurance cover? Like, no. recover? <laughs> right. So that's yeah. what I was. So like, really, that's a problem. Because just like any other, you know, illness or disease or whatever, mental health recovery is so important. So right. it's it's really a shame that people have to either continue suffering with whatever they're going through, or they just like are going to debt or whatever, or just don't get help. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, being able to afford the appropriate treatment for eating disorder comes along with privilege. And and honestly, you have to be rich to be able to afford the treatment you need a lot of times, which is so, so sad because even for people that have amazing insurance, they might go to treatment and be cut off after five days for whatever arbitrary reason the insurance comes up with. And nobody can heal in five days from a 
life-threatening eating disorder. So yeah, insurance is scary. The amount of like, I mean, I, I as a therapist, I can't take insurance because I can't afford to take insurance and I feel really bad, but it, yeah, so you have to be, and I, because of that, I do a bunch of sliding scale slots, but still like it's, it's really inaccessible and which, you know, causes people to die because they can't get the help they need. That's so sad. Yeah, it's awful. I mean, our healthcare system is probably pretty problematic <laughs> in general. <laughs> <What was Yeah. laughs> um, are there any like resources that people who can't afford to get treatment could turn to? Um, so Project Heal um, is a place that offers scholarships and some and some treatments. I think there is a new treatment center opening, which I can't talk about yet, but they're gonna. Their aim is to make it a lot more accessible, and insurances will cover for a full year. Um, but yeah, when that comes out, that's going to be great. But it's only for like adolescents and young adults. Um, so Project Heal, I would say, and, and some treatment centers offer scholarships. And so I would look into that. It depends on the time of year and it depends on um, how long the wait is. But there are treatment centers that offer scholarships. It's, but it's, it's, you know, it's still hard and it's not easy to right. necessarily get. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So I have some questions about eating disorders. So where is the line where unhealthy choices become an eating disorder? Yeah, I think like, like any, any sort of mental illness, right? Like everyone can struggle with anxiety, but where does it cross the line of becoming a disorder? And it's just really how much space it takes up in your life and how it's, it's impacting you. Like, you know, so many people exercise as a way to like burn up calories or view foods as good or bad or um, think about like trying to cut their, their food out or they feel uncomfortable in their bodies. But I think when it becomes an eating disorder, and obviously there's like criteria in the DSM, which I don't really hold too much credit for, but it's, it's really, it's really when it's, it's taking over your life. And it's, it's, there's a very big difference between, I don't know, somebody um, going on a diet and somebody who's like taking laxatives or throwing up their food or starving themselves and, and not being able to stop even when they see and know that it's, it's killing themselves and that it's hurting their bodies and it's hurting their friendships and it's hurting their lives. And it's like, there's just like a place where they, they really can't seem to stop. So I just think it's like the amount of space that it takes up in your life. Right. No, that makes total sense. And also like all things, I'm sure it builds up. It doesn't just happen one day. Right. And there's also a spectrum too, for sure. But yeah, definitely it's not one day. And then, you know, which I think is also hard because people are like, oh, it's not that bad. And actually a hallmark of eating disorders is I, I don't know a single client of mine that has ever walked into my office and felt like they were like supposedly sick enough. They, everyone's like, no, I'm not that sick or it's not that bad. Like it's just, it's, you know, and it's, I think the the piece that makes it hard is that disordered eating is pretty much like accepted as normal in our society. So people are trying to recover in a disordered world, which makes it so much harder. Right. Right. That makes total sense. So like, what are some signs to look out for, you know, if someone in your life may be developing an eating disorder? Um, that's a big question because it also, I mean, there's different kinds of eating disorders, but I think, you know, if somebody is going to the bathroom a lot after the meals, if there is maybe marks in their hands uh, or their knuckles from their teeth from purging, um, someone who um, is just maybe you see, maybe you see their personality changing a lot. And when they're around food, they look uncomfortable. Maybe they're avoiding any social situation that involves food and making excuses, or I already ate, or um, I'm allergic to this, or just like maybe just things that are happening like that more and more often that are out of the ordinary. And I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, like focus on weight, because like I said in the beginning, so many people with eating disorders either don't lose weight or lose weight and like don't look like they're sick in quotes. So 
I, I, I place less emphasis on what a person looks like and more emphasis on like their behaviors and attitudes around food and around and, and their like personalities and things like that. Right. No, that, that makes total sense. So is there any advice you would give to parents to help their children not be candidates for future eating disorders? Do not put your children on diets. Okay. <laughs> um, really work on like teaching kids that, yeah, body diversity is a beautiful thing and exposing them to different bodies. Um, like, I feel like, um, I don't know who is familiar with this, but division of responsibility is a really great way of helping your kids be healthy, like flexible eaters. Um, and I, I don't, I don't need to go into the whole thing, but you can read about it. Um, Ellen Satter has great books, but basically you're in charge of what they eat and when they eat and they're in charge of how much and they're, they, and you know, you might be like, Oh my God, but they didn't eat lunch. And most kids will, will, you know, if they didn't have a bit like, enough at lunch they'll have more than like it'll balance out or like they might only have one food group at breakfast we'll have a different food group at lunch and overall it's not really about one meal getting in everything it's it's overall like you get a variety of foods in over a week or two weeks it's important so really like letting your kids like learn to listen to their body and trust their body without jumping in right because all kids are intuitive eaters we're born you know when you give a kid a, bo- a baby a bottle when they're not hungry anymore, they push it away. Even if there's like an ounce left, you're not going to be like, Oh my God, you have to finish the last ounce. Like you let your kid be, but over, when, over time we, and, and, and the whole like diet industry kind of like gets in the way, like this food is bad. This food is good. You shouldn't be eating this. Am I hungry? Am I not hungry? Maybe I should drink water because I'm hungry. Like all of these things that just get into the mix and we kind of screw our kids up. So really just letting your kids be, letting them be with food and trusting them and trusting their bodies is so important. You can read more about how to do that, you know, through books, but I feel like that's a huge step in helping your kids be just intuitive, healthy eaters. Yeah, that's great. It goes back to trusting your intuition and, and your children, people around you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, just never, ever comment on bodies. Don't talk badly about your body in front of your kids. Like that's also a really important piece. Right. Because you are your child's role model. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, this is this is what we learn when we see kids, we see parents looking in the mirror and like having like a look of disgust, or we hear parents talking about diets twenty four seven, or like, and we think like, oh, our kids are not going to hear that. Our kids will hear that and get that message and absorb that and learn what's important and what's not important and learn that to be accepted, you have to look a certain way. And isn't that the last thing we want to be doing? Like, it starts with us. Like, the next generation start with us. Yeah, for sure, sure. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of women and girls, you know, have at least one thing they don't like about their body, right? So like, even if it's not like an unhealthy level, what are some ways that you would say like to have a more positive body yeah, image? I think my approach to body image is very different than what we think about it. Like I, my approach is not about looking in the mirror and feeling that you're beautiful. It's really learning to associate that your worth is so much more than what you look like. So it's not really about like, oh, I don't like my stomach or I don't like my arms. It's like, how can I live a life that is meaningful and um, something that brings me joy and pleasure and feel like, how can I live a meaningful life? And so, so that my body takes up less time and less importance. I love that. So is that how you approach the healing journey in general as a therapist yeah, with I your do clients? Yeah, a lot, a lot of that, trying to make your life more meaningful. I think um, even in terms of, you know, we, I, like this is based like 101, but social media feeds, what are you looking at? Are you scrolling through the same like thin body or are you diversifying your feed and learning to view other bodies as beautiful? If we see only one image again and again and again, that's what we're going to associate with beauty or 
acceptance or like what's okay and what's not okay. So it's, it's a simple thing, but it's so important to make sure to diver- diversify your feed. I think that's really important for how you view other bodies. Um, and yeah, really just trying to bring in worth and, and value and, and also a lot of value work. So living according to your values and not necessarily your eating disorder values or not necessarily diet culture values, but because most people's true values are not about shrinking their bodies. It's, it's about being a, a kind person. It's, you know, there's so many other things. And so how do we live according to our values? And that's a lot of work that I do as well. Wow. That's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. And so therapeutically, have you found that there's an underlying belief or feeling that underlies a lot of eating disorders? Like, is it about not feeling good, like in terms of or positive about life in general? Um, I think it really depends on the person, you know, like I'll have some clients that have an eating disorder, like really based on biology. It's wild. It's actually like, you know, you'll have a kid who has the flu and loses a couple of pounds. And then it's like their eating disorder is switched on and they have supportive, loving parents. And they have like, they were totally fine before. It's like really just biology. Their body reacts to losing weight with an eating disorder. And then I have clients who, yeah, have like really low self-esteem and really awful self-worth or, or have clients who have really long trauma history. So it, it really depends. Um, because yeah, like I said, it's eating disorders can come from biology, environment, trauma, like so many different factors. Right. No, that makes sense. And what what's the best way to support someone who's suffering with an eating disorder, whether it's your friend or family member? What would you say is the best way to support them? I think them? really just being there for them, loving them, being just being in connection with them um, no matter what. And I think you, you can ask them, like, wh- what's the best way that I can support you? Because, you know, everybody wants something different. Um, and just honestly being their friend and just loving them no matter what is, is incredibly important. And I also love that you said that at, about like about asking them, because I think a lot of people just, just assume like, Oh, everybody wants the same thing. Right. Everybody needs the same thing. And, and the truth is people, when we're going through things, if we're close to you, we want to just tell you, you want to tell your friend, here's what you could do for me. But sometimes right. you don't feel comfortable. Right. Like some you people know? just, some people want to talk about it. Some people don't want to talk about it. Some people want to like, maybe do like FaceTime meals together. Some people want to be distracted. I mean, there's, you know, everybody wants, and some people say, I don't know. And that's okay too. You know? Right. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So we kind of touched on this a little bit, but um, what, what is it like working with women and girls who are experiencing similar struggles? You know, not the same thing as we said before, but similar struggles to what you went I through. I think what makes me be able to do this work is that I really view each person as an individual and I really don't like do the whole comparison thing. That's never been the way my brain works. So I don't know. I, when I'm with my client in the room, I'm with them in the room. I'm focused on them and their struggles and just have so much compassion for them. So it's really like, it's really not about me and, and my struggles. I'm just really fully present with them in the room, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Yes, for sure. Okay, so who are your inspirations and role models? Um, I would say, so my colleagues, for sure. Um, the people in my life that are doing the work that I do as well. And um are doing the same work and really trying to make sure this world is safe for people in all bodies. Um, so, and, and help me in my recovery. And I think a couple of people that have really been inspiring to me are people that have fully recovered from their eating disorders and are doing the work that I'm doing and living incredible, meaningful lives. I, I always look to them when things are hard and remind myself that, um, you know, this is what I want to be, this is what I want to continue to be doing too. So, yeah. Okay. Wow. So, 
currently, you know, you have a huge community of followers. I think I I've been following you on Instagram, but I saw that you are on Twitter mm-hmm. also. You have over like for sure over a hundred thousand followers, right. right? Like between the well, two Instagram, platforms. Twitter, Facebook, yeah, probably. Um, yeah, and they're, and you're growing by the day, you know. So was becoming a body positive blogger influencer like a goal of yours? Or did it just like, happen it happened organically. I finished social work school and I just had a lot of time in my hands in between. Well, not, I mean, a few months between my first job and graduating. And that's when like blogging was starting to become popular. And I remember just being really like having a lot of fun with fashion and figuring it'd be a fun hobby on the side. So I started my blog, like literally my mother would sit outside my house and take pictures of me and she'd be like, oh my God, can I stop now? And I'd be like, can you at least pretend to take the picture? <laughs> and I love that. so that was like, you know, and then I realized like, oh, to be like, to get to the next level, I need like better photos and I need a website. And so I did everything slowly. I have no idea if I would have done, if I would have really known what the kind of work that goes into it. But so I ended up getting a photographer and then I started, people started being interested and I got my first campaign with a brand and I was like, oh, like this could be real. Um, not that it wasn't real before, but it was more of a hobby. And, um, you know, I always, always wanted my blog to be accessible for people in all bodies, but it was a couple years in where I made it a point to like only share, like to share things with, um, plus size and inclusive sizing options. And so to make it accessible for all people, I never want to be the person that you look at and can't like, I mean, even, even with accessibility, like there's always going to be it's not a hundred percent accessible because people in the largest size bodies might not have access to it, but I want to make it as inclusive as I can. And then, you know, a couple of years after that, I started talking more about my work as a therapist and more about health at every size um, topics. And I think some people were just like, wait, I thought this was a fashion blog and it is, but I also, it's not enough for me. I think it's important to me to bring in these other messages. And so it kind of happened slowly and organically. Um, at this point, I do bring in a lot more of like anti-diet and health at every size conversations besides for fun fashion. I kind of like that mix. Yeah, no, I love it. It brings more validity to your platform because you're a therapist. So you actually have the background and know what you're talking about when you when you discuss right. body positivity. And, that's, I mean, that's, you know what I mean, that's what I like to so, do too. I'm not just like, like I'm talking from experience. I'm talking from what I've learned. Yeah. Right, for sure. What is something that you hope the next generation of women won't have to struggle with? I mean, just on this topic, like I think that there's, it makes me so sad to see incredible women who like are doing amazing work, whether it's at home or at their jobs or in their lives in so many ways, focused on trying to shrink their bodies. And I feel like in trying, in spending all of your energy trying to shrink your bodies, you're not focusing on all the cool, important things you're meant to do. So I would say I hope that our next generation could be free of disordered eating and eating disorders and diet culture because we have so much more important things to do than worry about what we look like. I love that for sure. Okay. And where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? So if you want to find me on my like blog and the fashion piece, you can follow me on The Sheer Rose on Instagram and my website is thesheerrose.com. And if you want to find more about my social work and my private practice, you can find me at sheerrosenbluthlcsw.com. Great. great. Thank you so much, Shira, for joining me today. That's all for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Carmela Cosmetics. That's Carmela with a K. And on our website, CarmelaCosmetics.com. If there's a woman in your life whose story needs to be heard, send me a message to let me know who she is and why she means so much to you. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know your thoughts. We want you to feel heard. 